Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 242 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing what it's like to be an author in your 20s and talking about who some of the exciting young authors are that everyone should know about. And I'm joined by four guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Loosed Upon the World and What the Bleep is That? His new anthology, Cosmic Powers, will be out in April. So, John, welcome back. Though I am now old and withered, it's good to be here. <laughs> then next up, we've got Seth Dickinson, who you may remember from our panel on cyberpunk back in episode 53, and our panel on dinosaurs and science fiction back in episode 155. His short story, Three Bodies at Mitanni, appeared in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016, and his first novel, The Traitor Brew Cormorant, has appeared on countless Best of 2015 reading lists. He's also studied racial bias in police shootings and written a lore for Bungie's smash hit video game, Destiny. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Then next up, we've got Lara Elena Donnelly. She's a graduate of the Alpha and Clarion Writers Workshops, and her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Escape Pod, Nightmare, and Mythic Delirium. Her debut novel, the vintage glam spy thriller Amberlow, will be out this month from Tor Books. A veteran of small town Ohio and the Derby City, Lara now lives in Manhattan. Find her on Twitter at Larazontoli or on the web at laradonnelly.com. So, Lara, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. And also joining us today is Harris A. Durrani. His debut book, Technologies of the Self, won the Driftless Novella Contest, and he also won first prize in the McSweeney's Student Short Story Contest. His work has appeared in Analog, Lightspeed, Catapult, The New York Review of Science Fiction, Media Diversified, and Comparative Islamic Studies. He holds a master's degree in the history and philosophy of science from Cambridge University and a bachelor's degree in applied physics from Columbia, where he co-founded the Muslim Protagonist Literary Symposium. Follow him on Twitter at hdernity. So Harris, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Okay, and so the first point I want to make here, and I really can't stress this enough, John, is that kids today have it easy compared to when we were their age. <laughs> I think you'll agree. And so just to give a couple examples, I think really that we got into the science fiction publishing at the pretty much the worst time in history because the print magazines had pretty much declined as much as they were going to. And the online magazines hadn't really emerged so much yet. So there was this period of time where it was just really, really hard to get started as a young writer because there were just a couple of big magazines and it was fairly unusual for them to publish young authors. It was sort of the same names you saw pretty much issue after issue. And there weren't really any internet resources to speak of. There were no teen writing workshops. Um, the YA boom hadn't really happened yet. So there wasn't, you couldn't really, there wasn't this huge market for YA fantasy to, that you could jump into that. Um, I think there was a pretty strong bias against fantasy and science fiction in schools and colleges uh, that is, you know, not, not so bad anymore. But so I guess, John, do you agree with that? Do you think that things were really hard for us in particular? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and plus we had to mail our submissions via the U.S. Postal Service. You know, we couldn't just email our submissions to, man uh, to editors and stuff. But um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, Strange Horizons was uh, founded uh, sometime around when I was just getting started. I think they may have even been founded in 2001, which is, or maybe 2000. So, I mean, I think they were there. And then, like, Sci Fiction, which was the um, uh, webzine that the Sci Sci Fi Channel was publishing that Ellen Datlow edited, that was around. Uh, but yeah, um, and I, I mean, I think there's a few others. Like, you published a story in Gothic.net, which I think was around at that time. But um, but they were few and far between, and um, most online markets at that time were not taken very seriously uh, by the majority of the um, by the field. Um, you know, uh, they rarely got reprinted in uh, years best anthologies. Like, like I feel like people didn't even really give them much consideration. Um, although I imagine Ellen, anything Ellen published would have gotten consideration. Um, and it took like a long time for things to start ending up on um, award ballots and stuff. Um, so. Uh, yeah, they were certainly in their infancy at that time. And, uh, because of that, because there were so few publications, uh, it was really hard for a new writer to break in. Um, and of course, uh, even harder for the, uh, the younger new writer because, you know, they ha they're going up against, uh, like lots and lots and lots of other new writers, but many of whom have more experience than them. So, you know, they sort of have a leg up. Right. I will say that there was one big magazine, Realms of Fantasy, that published new writers, mm -hmm. you know, more often than the others and a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends and younger writers at that time, you know, uh, were able to place stuff there pretty consistently. So I do want to note that. But so, so John, so you and Doug Cohen um, at some point decided you wanted to do this 20 by 20s anthology. So say, what was your motivation for wanting to do that? Uh, yeah, well, that was actually, uh, it started with Doug. It, it was his idea that he came up with, um, and he approached me about, uh, co-editing it. Um, and, you know, Doug was working at Realms of Fantasy at the time. He was the assist, uh, editorial assistant there. Um, and I was the editorial assistant at FNSF. Um, and, uh, and so we were both in our twenties and, uh, he had proposed the idea of doing, you know, a, an anthology of, of young writers because he had noticed how many, uh, sort of young writers were out there that were, uh, uh, publishing. Um, even though, as you say, it was tough at that time, there was, a, there was a few, um, notable, there were a few notable, um, folks to, that, that, that made him think of this. And so, um, so we put together a proposal and, uh, we started shopping it around and, uh, you know, we recruited all these different authors. And actually I was, I was thinking about it, um, the other day and it was like, um, if you if we had published that anthology back then, if you looked at it now, it would like look like pretty good, you know, in terms of like who these authors have become since then. Like uh it's like we had like Tobias Bakel, Tim Pratt, Catherine Valenti, Marjorie Liu, Sherry Priest, Scott Lynch, uh Brandon Sanderson, uh of course David Bart Kirtley. Um <laughs> you know, and, and so uh, a lot of these authors have gone on to do like, you know, really big things and um you know, back then they were still uh very new and and but still like, you know, they uh we came very close to selling this book though. And it's funny. We, we had a couple of different close calls. And, uh, one of the funny things is that publishing moves so slow that I actually aged out. Like I turned 30 uh, from the time when we started shopping around, I was in my twenties. And then by the time, um, we started getting these close calls, I had turned 30. Um, and one publisher, uh, they were seriously considering the, the proposal. And, um, because I had turned 30, they were like, well, since John turned 30, we don't really think we can put him on the, on the byline. Like he could maybe ghost edit his portion of the book. Um, and then Doug could be on the cover. Uh, but then they didn't want just Doug to be on the cover. They wanted us to get Christopher Paolini to co-edit it. Um, you know, Christopher Paolini, at the, you know, at the time he was the, the big young writer, uh, you know, he had, uh, sold his novels when he was like 14 or something like that. Um, 
And so, uh, so we came really close on that one, but, um, Doug actually went and sort of stalked Christopher Fountain <laughs> at a signing, um, and just so he could ask him. And, uh, uh, unfortunately he, uh, he didn't go for it. So, um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, that was, that was a very weird, frustrating project. Um, we, we actually later sort of tried to rebrand it. Um, like after, after the folks in the book sort of got too old to be 20 by 20s, uh, we're like, oh, well, there's still a lot, a lot of young writers who are in their 20s, but maybe also in their early 30s. And so we tried to rebrand it as, uh, uh, the next wave or we, uh, or, um, speculative fiction, the next generation, uh, sort of idea where we'd, uh, you know, just do the same thing, but just, you know, raise the age limit a little bit to allow, uh, you know, writers who are in the 30s to be in there. But um, alas, we never got anywhere with that. Well, but so there's sort of this inherent problem with doing anything that focuses on young writers because publishers always want recognized names in the table mm-hmm. of contents to draw attention. And the odds that young writers are going to have really recognizable names is pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is at the time, um, you know, Marjorie Liu and Scott Lynch and Brandon Sanderson were all pretty big. And I think Sherry Priest already had her books out and they, they had been uh, very well received. So, I mean, we had some like good names on there. Um, and, uh, you know, Tim Pratt had already won a Nebula award. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, any, any anthology is a hard sell and they, uh, a lot of the publishers, they, they mainly make their decision based on like what the sales track record is of, of the writers that you have lined up. And yeah, like you say, I mean, uh, when, when you have newer writers, uh, no matter their age, but, uh, um, you know, it, it makes it very difficult. Uh, so, you know, even with the hook that we had, it's like we thought like maybe the hook of, of the, the youth, uh, you know, sort of focus of the project would, uh, sort of help overcome those obstacles. And I think it did help. It just didn't help enough to get us, you know, uh, get us into the promised land. Yeah. Well, so, so Seth, what do you think about when you hear this? Do you start to appreciate how easy you've had it? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, I remember when I got started, uh, basically at a writer's workshop that you were a teacher at, uh, the thought of having to mail in all my submissions was really irritating. Um, so, just the fact that we can submit online, that everyone has moved over to online submissions, I think so much easier to break in. Uh, I also feel like there's maybe a little more support available for, you know, people who want to get into novels. Just for the whole, for starting out as a writer, there's a lot of knowledge available online that you would have had to look up in, like, a writer's digester. Some incomprehensibility of these primeval days when people made calls on landlines and weird things like that. Well, so Seth, why don't you tell us about kind of how did you come to, what was your journey for ending up at the Alpha Young Writers Workshop? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, so when I was a kid, I really loved Lego bricks. And uh, I made a lot of spaceships out of Lego bricks, and I kind of tyrannized my little brother, and he made the spaceships too. He ended up being better than me. So he kind of provided the labor. And I wrote the stories for what was going on with our Lego spaceships. Then I discovered that on the internet, there were, like, grown-ass men. No women that I know of. It was a very, uh, kind of a sausage fest. Um, but they were all building Lego spaceships with these computer-generated Lego-building programs, and then they were writing stories about their Lego spaceships fighting each other. So I was in, like, middle school, and I thought this was the coolest thing. And I actually got involved with one of these websites, uh, writing stories about their Lego spaceships, which was, by the way, super cool. And, uh, there was a guy at one of these websites who, uh, he must have been in his late 20s by then. He was a physics and computer science, uh, 
I don't think he had a doctorate, but he was he was pretty well along. And uh, he provided, like, scientific advice for our Lego spaceships so we could make them sound plausible. And one day he knew I was a fan of Timothy Zahn. So he was like, hey, Tim Zahn is teaching at this workshop near my hometown. Uh, you should go. By the way, the deadline's tonight. <laughs> oh, wow. So I ended up writing a story and getting in, which was fantastic, because that's where I met my partner 10 years ago. And if I hadn't done that, everything would have been ruined. So the <laughs> short version is every time my parents bring up their parenting skills, I give them shit because they should have let me spend more time playing with Legos. Yeah, fair, fair point, for sure. Yeah. How about Lara? What was your uh, you know, trip to the, how did you end up at Alpha in the first place? Uh, so my, my version of this story does not involve toys of any description. Um, it in fact involves my mother's cracked exhaust manifold, uh, which on a Honda Civic is a really expensive repair. Um, and I was planning on going to a workshop for teen writers in St. Andrews, Scotland. And I had been working all summer at a restaurant to save up money. And my mom had been saving up money. And then she had this car problem. Um, and, and I couldn't go, I couldn't go to Scotland. We didn't have enough money for me to go. But luckily she remembered, and I had totally forgotten this. So, so this is all my mom's good memory. Um, she remembered that at a, like a, it was a very short workshop. It was like a two or three, it was a two day event in Michigan, um, in Ann Arbor at, at the university that was hosting the Clarion Writers Workshop at the time. Um, which is like a six week workshop for adult writers, but they had a sort of an adjacent workshop for teens called the Clarion Youth Workshop. And I had gone to that and Holly Black and, um, and Charles Coleman Finley, who now edits, um, fantasy and science fiction magazine were both teaching there. And someone, I think Holly mentioned that Tamara Pierce, the amazing fantasy author that everyone in the world should, should have read, especially young women, um, Tamara Pierce taught at this workshop every summer in outside Pittsburgh. Uh, and I couldn't remember the name and I forgot about it. And my mom couldn't remember the name, but she hadn't forgotten about it. So she looked up every young writer's workshop that she could find, of which there are not that many, and found Alpha, which is where Tamara Pierce teaches. And so even though I couldn't go to Scotland, um, I was able to go to Alpha, where I met Seth, where we were both awkward teenagers together. <laughs> and now we're awkward adults <laughs> together. I don't even remember hearing about that thing in Scotland before. Is that still a thing? I don't think so. I I don't even remember. Like, it was definitely was not specifically for genre writing either. It was just for, like, it was like a pre-college program for young writers. Um, but it didn't have a focus on science fiction and fantasy at all. Mm. And so how... So, so you said you hadn't been writing about Legos at all. Had you been writing about anything else prior to Alpha? I had. I had actually written a novel, which <laughs> the other day I was reflecting how fortunate I was that my novel that I wrote before Alpha was never published because I did submit it places. Uh, and I had one editor who, who wrote me back and asked for a full manuscript. And, uh, and I, I came to Alpha having had my like first novel rejection and was so hurt and confused and like, and, and the novel rejection wasn't based on quality on the face of it, it was that the editor preferred not to work with teenage authors. So I was like very up in arms about the fact <laughs> that my novel had been rejected purely based on my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when I got to Alpha, it was the first time I ever 
had anyone tell me that I could sell short stories. Like I, I had been purely focusing on novels and, and it was the first place that someone said, you know, a great way to break into the industry is to write short fiction. Right. Because well, I must have been one of those people, right? Because I, I even remember you had this story. It was sort of a um, like 1920s kind of story with magic uh, playing cards or something like that. Oh, no, it was a, it was crapshooters. It was sorcerous crapshooters because I had just been in Guys and Dolls. Yeah, but I remember, I, didn't I tell you like, oh, I, I think you could get this story published? Maybe. I, I, the first alpha is very fuzzy in my memory. Um, but I, Charles Coleman Finley was teaching. At the first Alpha. So, like, he had been one of the people teaching at Clarion Youth. And then there he was teaching at, I think it was 2007, Alpha 2007. Um, so that was really cool to see, like, the same author twice. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. It was like a, there was a whole world in writing and publishing that I was totally unaware of. Yeah. Well, so how about Harris? How did you end up at Alpha? Yeah, um... I'm so glad that Seth mentioned Legos because I also <laughs> love Legos and those definitely influenced my um, interest in genre for sure. Although there's no direct correlation, unfortunately. Um, I think mine isn't as exciting. It was more like, I think either my, my mom was really into like into genre and, and books generally. So I think either she told me about it or I had one teacher in high school who was very, very supportive that might've told me about alpha. And I think I applied I applied relatively young, um, even for the workshop, and I got rejected. Um, but then, in my, I think in the John, you have to correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think uh, Diane Turncheck said, "Hey, we can't take you this year." But uh, John Adams, uh, this guy John Joseph Adams, um, is looking for an intern, um, and I think that's how I ended up interning for you. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and then I think I. Go ahead. I was going to say, Diane definitely uh, introduced uh, you to me. I don't remember if uh, I thought you had already gone to Alpha, and that's why she knew you. But um, I don't remember all the specific details. But no, yeah, yeah. And then I think either the year after or the year after that, I applied again. Uh, I think I just kept applying until I got in, basically. <laughs> um, and it, it was really an amazing experience. I think the story I worked on there ended up becoming my first published story uh, professionally in analog. Um, I did a lot of work on it afterwards, but the groundwork was really laid at Alpha. Uh, so I'm really grateful for my time there. Well, so tell us, what was it like interning for John Joseph Adams? <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Um, it was a bit of a dream come true because it was, I'd always, you know, as a kid read uh, so many genre works and always aspired to be a writer and to be in that world. And I think John was really my first introduction, uh, not only to the genre world, but to the literary world as well. And to get a taste of how, how it works uh, was really a privilege. And it was a lot of fun also. I remember, I think John at one point had said, the great part about my job is I get to read stories and, and edit them. And this is what I get to do for a living. Um, and that's fun. That's really, um, really a great thing to do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, John, what do, you, do you have any memories of Harris uh, being your intern? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was a little... Um, uh, so, so the the general intern experience I've had with people is is sort of disconnected, just because they're usually I don't usually spend much time with them in person because they're uh, in both in the case of like Harris and then like Rebecca McNulty, who was another Alpha student who was one of my interns. Like they would they would sort of periodically like come by uh, 
and then like I just like give them some books to read or something and like they wouldn't really we wouldn't really spend much time together um but then we'd you know uh discuss things online like by email or um I mean like a large part of what I would do with them is I would um I would like give them an anthology and like what um I I called it indexing and so basically I'd have them like read an anthology and uh try to take notes about it for me like in in a spreadsheet so that I could you know access it later and say okay so read the story um you know, give it a rating on a scale of one to 10, like, you know, so I can see how much you liked it, uh, identify what genre it is, like if it's SF or fantasy, um, and then also to say what, what subgenre is it? So it's like, okay, would this fit into an anthology? Like, is this story post-apocalyptic or, you know, weird Western or whatever? Um, because I was, um, you know, I was getting my anthology career going at that time and, uh, you know, I figured uh, it, it would be helpful to, to know because it's like half the problem of trying to do a theme anthology is figure, finding all the, the stories that fit the theme just so that I can consider them. Um, and uh, so that's that's largely uh, what I had the, uh, Harrison and, and later interns doing. Um, he could probably tell you if I, I don't remember if I gave him any other weird task. Like, so I, I mean, every now and then I'll come up with a task that's just like, oh, hey, I have an intern. I should have them do that, you know, um, where it's just like, that's what oh, we're there I want for. It. Like, a lot of times it's, it's kind of frustrating because it's like a, like there's like a task I know an intern can do, but it would actually take more time to actually explain how to do it. Um, so I just end up doing it, you know, but then, but then there's lots of things. It's like, well, hey, you know, that, that person is smart. I can just hand this off to them and see if they can figure it out, you know, you know. I know Harris was good at that kind of thing, but um, are you still looking for interns, John? If there are any enterprising <laughs> young people listening to this podcast, uh, yeah, I mean, every now and then, um, I try not to take on more than one at a time lately, just because it's like I, I can't really keep track of like who's doing what um, if I don't do that. Um, I mean, if I if I do that, um, so like right now, I do have someone who's working with me, um, and uh, but you know, eventually he'll graduate and he'll probably stop interning and then and then in that case yes i will but uh yeah at the moment i'm not but um you know if anybody's listening and they want to you know get in touch uh, you know they should feel free to reach out and uh i can you know maybe keep a keep an application on file even if i don't take an intern sometimes we um i use uh first readers for uh you know for the slush pile um and uh and so, like, I keep those uh, sorts of um, applications. Like, I have, a, I have a whole application process now where it's, like, it's just, like, a Google form that you can fill out. And so that way I can easily keep track of, like, who is uh, interested in working, uh, you know, doing the intern type work. And, and, and that's essentially, like, a, like a slush reader is kind of an intern, the way, the way I have it set up. Yeah. Okay, so, Lara, so you said that this editor rejected your manuscript because you didn't want to work with the teenager was that just for legal reasons or they're just like a pain to deal like what was did he give any re more reason for that um i actually don't remember and it was it was a woman editor um but <laughs> i don't actually remember what the reasons were besides that that she didn't want to work with teenagers um because it's long ago and i've repressed it as like <laughs> my first very painful memory of rejection um, but I, I strongly suspect that the sort of I don't want to work with teenagers was a way of, of being like, I don't want to publish this novel, but I'm going to say it's because you're too young as opposed to, I, I'm not sure why. I, I would have to dig back in my old, old high school email address that may still be extant on the internet somewhere. Uh, to try to find to try to find the rejection letter, which I'm sure I saved because my mother, who is also a writer, 
uh, was at the time telling me, you know, like, save all of your rejections. Mm -hmm. And then I came to Alpha and there was a huge binder of all of the staff members' rejections that the students were welcome to page through mm -hmm. um, as a sort of like galvanizing tactic against future rejections. Like, look, these people are teaching you and they're all successful authors and look at their binders full of mm -hmm. rejections. I think, is that, wait, is that binder just It was rejection? just me, actually, yeah. Yeah, it's ah. just your rejections team. <laughs> that giant binder rejections, that was just all me. <laughs> I wonder if that editor was actually uh, thinking that, that that kind of rejection might galvanize you and be like, oh, yeah? You don't want to work with a teenager? I'll show <laughs> you. you. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm curious. Now I really want to go back and read it and sort of like parse between the lines and see what, yeah. what I think it really meant. <laughs> And so then, Lara, did uh, going to Alpha just completely launch your career into who you are today? I mean, I definitely met people at Alpha who are still really valuable members of my writing community who absolutely have pushed me to where I am today. It's also the first place I heard about Clarion, which I ended up going to um, after I graduated from college. Because I think at least one of our staff members had gone to Clarion and then several of the alumni from Alpha who I kept in touch with, because we have a really great alumni community. I kept in touch with several alumni who also ended up going to Clarion and really had good things to say about it. Um, and Alpha also encouraged me to enter short stories in the Dell Magazine Award for Undergraduate Excellence in Science Fiction and Fantasy Writing, the award with the longest <laughs> name ever. Uh, and, and that award, if you are a finalist, it's not just if you win, if you're a finalist, you are registered to attend the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts, ICFA. And, um, that conference several years later, because I was a finalist for several years and then ended up winning in my last year of eligibility. And then I kept going to the conference after I had graduated from college. And that's the conference where I met my editor and pitched my book, uh, Amberlope, which is coming out. Oh my God. So soon. Like now <laughs> it's coming out now. I can't. Like, yeah. Well, so, well, well so and say how you met your editor too. Yeah. How I met my editor. I'm not supposed to tell this story. She asked me to oh. only tell it in, in like, Small, small groups of friends. Nobody but listens did, to this I, podcast anyway. <laughs> I met her in the hot tub at ICFA with, with several academics because it's an academic conference. So there are a bunch of people there presenting like very highbrow papers about psychology and philosophy and other kinds of strange things and how they interact with science fiction and fantasy literature. Um, so there were a couple of academics, and there was me, there was my editor, and there was Max Gladstone, who writes the craft sequence. And the academics asked asked me and asked Max what we wrote. And so Max was already publishing with Tor, and he kind of gave his like short spiel about what his books were. And then the academics turned to me, and I was like, he had nothing to lose, but this is like my moment where I have to give my pitch. <laughs> Unfortunately, because it was like really late and I was in a hot tub and I'd been drinking a little bit, I didn't really, I couldn't give my like really polished elevator pitch. So I just kind of talked enthusiastically and waved my arms around a lot. And at the end of me talking enthusiastically and waving my arms around a lot, um, my editor, Diana, said she was interested and asked if I would send it to her when I was done with revisions, which I did. Yeah, no, that's so cool. And we'll get we'll talk a little bit more about your book later. It's funny mentioning the um, Dell Magazine's award. This is another way that you guys had it so good because I won that when I was a freshman in college. And I was thinking about this the other day that I, I got the email saying I had won or maybe it was a phone call. I don't remember. And I went out, you know, we would play hockey on the pond um, 
behind school because I was in Maine. And I went out to play hockey and one of my friends was there and I said, oh, I just won this contest. It's a really big deal. It's, uh, you know, for all, it's like the best science fiction story written by a college student anywhere in the country. And he was kind of like, oh, that's cool. And that was the, that was like, you know, he didn't care that, you know, he didn't care. He wasn't into science fiction or anything. And that was the extent of the, like, sharing the news really that I did. So I see you guys and you're just on Facebook and you get like <laughs> 60 people all congratulating you. It just makes me very bitter. <laughs> You're well, already Dave, I mean, bitter, Dave. <laughs> Dave, back in your day, you're lucky that he didn't just like punch you and call you a nerd, and, like <laughs> knock you on your ass. You know, it's like that's. Uh... Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Although you were pretty buff back then, right? Like you were like. Wait, what do you I mean? mean what, what, do you, buff, but what do you mean insinuating. back then? But I mean, like you were like you know, like in high school, like he was like he was like Rambo ripped. Yeah, no, I was. Yeah, well, because 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 the older kids were beating me up, so I just. You know, like I was working out like six hours a day and I was like super, super ripped. But yeah, I feel like we're getting off subject a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but so, Seth, you said that you met your partner, Jillian, at Alpha. And so that it was obviously a really, um, you know, important event in your life for that reason. Were there other big impacts that Alpha had on your writing and stuff like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the biggest one was probably giving me a goal to work towards in terms of it's really easy to feel like uh, getting a book published, for example, is something that is impossibly far away because you don't know the little incremental steps to take to get there. I don't know about any of the listeners, but when I am picking up a new task, I really like to have like a roadmap that tells me where to go every step of the way, because otherwise I'll be confused and lost and fuck it all up. Uh, and Alpha really, uh, helped sell the idea of writing as a job. Um, not that it demystified writing, it took the magic out of it, but like the idea that you could write a story, critique it, revise it, send it out, get your rejection, and just keep doing that. And even if you didn't realize it, your skills would eventually develop to the point where you'd be selling to better and better magazines. One of the biggest lessons was you always try to sell to the best magazines first. Uh, I see a lot of young writers kind of, uh, I think, selling themselves short. Um, publishing with really small presses or not, I don't mean to offend any small press people out there, but like publishing with your hometown, like sell at the book fair kind of press or uh, signing really bad contracts just because they want to be published. Um, so Alpha sold the idea that you should start at the top. And another really important thing I took away from Alpha was one of the big challenges of starting out as a writer, which is once you get really serious about it, your ability to criticize writing is going to develop a lot faster than your own skill. And it creates this weird optical illusion, like when you're riding in a car on the highway, and you're going a little faster than the guy next to you, and he kind of seems like he's sliding backwards. You feel like your writing is actually getting worse the more you practice. Uh, and you'll look back fondly on this time when writing was just easy and fun. And now it's so hard because you're thinking about sentence construction and all this stuff. And you have to know that is an illusion. Like, it's it's created by the fact that you're so much better at tearing your own writing down uh, than you were a year ago. Right. I think it's really interesting, Seth, because you and Jillian met at Alpha, but then you guys were going to different colleges. And so... One thing you did, because you, you were in this long-distance relationship, is you actually wrote novels together over Instant Messenger, right? Yeah, that was a ton of fun. Um, I went back to one of those recently. It was a really good time. 
Uh, I really love the premise. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I have any... Well, no, say, say, say more about what that process was like. Uh, we had a good setup where we split up the points of view. Um, and I know a lot of writers have actually pulled this off well, though often with like epistolary novels where they've told them letters. But we each sort of owned one character. And I think in general in writing, if you can get two characters who are occupying the same space but have really different motives, they just kind of bounce off each other and create conflict um, in a way that almost lets the story tell itself. That's a lie, because there's actually a ton of hard work involved. But uh, to me, one of the most basic acts of writing is you just get two people who want different things and see how they bounce off each other. Uh, and that was basically our process. See, because I thought like you would get on instant messenger and one of you would write a sentence and the next the other person would write another sentence. You would kind of go back and forth. Yes. Am I just yeah? Yeah, no, that's true. I, I just think that I think that's really cool. It was pretty cool. Um, well, so how about Harris? Tell talk about the impact that Alpha had on your life going forward. Yeah, Alpha definitely had a huge impact. Um, like I said, my the first story that I ever got professionally published was the story I worked on while I was at Alpha in Analog. Um, and although I went on to revise the story a lot more afterwards, um, Alpha really set the groundwork, not, on, not only for that, um, but I, I think up to that point, I, I love to write, uh, I love genre, and I think in school or, or working with teachers I had in school, they sort of taught me the um, how to write in a, uh, how to write maybe like beautiful sentences um, but they hadn't really taught me the mechanics of story, uh, which is so essential to the to the craft. Uh, and so coming to Alpha really, really taught me that not only was it possible to become uh, a writer and to become a science fiction writer, um, but it, it really showed me how it was possible. Uh, and it really show, showed me how to master the craft, or at least begin to master the craft. Uh, and I think it was also just really inspiring. I remember... Um, uh, I think that year Gregory Frost uh, was one of the teachers and he had read through all of our stories that we had submitted for Alpha. Uh, and one of the comments he had given on mine was, oh, your story reminds me a lot of uh, one of my friends, Ted Chang. Uh, and up to that point, I'd never read Ted Chang. And a few years later, I read and devoured all of Ted Chang's stories pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, and it blew my mind. That that really changed the course of my my writing. And I thought back to that. Uh, that moment, and it gains so much meaning. Um, so Alpha was a really sort of, in an instrumental way, it helped teach me the craft, but it was also very empowering and inspiring and helped me move forward from there. Right. So then what were some of the next steps then? Because I, I read in your bio you had won a couple contests, right? Talk about that. Yeah. So uh, the next thing was I had won the um, Scholastics uh, uh, Gold Portfolio, National Gold Portfolio Award. Um, and I had had some genre works there, some memoir, uh, and that really helped a lot as well. Because um, that was another sort of moment of, uh, you know, this is possible, you can become a writer. And so much of what you hear, even at a young age, is being a writer is not very easy, and you have to be willing to tough it through. And I think Alpha and Scholastic, uh, at the, at sort, especially towards the end of high school, um, really taught me, showed me that I could go on to do these things. Uh, that it was really possible, you know. Right, but so so there was this McSweeney's contest, right? Oh yes, McSweeney's. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, uh, that was a 
that was actually a story I had written um, in undergrad. Um, and it wasn't so I took a lot of writing classes in undergrad, a lot of writing workshops. I wasn't a writing major or anything, but just for fun. I, I sort of needed it because I was studying engineering, so I needed to exercise the other part of my brain. Um, uh, and surprisingly, this was one sto- the one story that usually I would just use those workshops to give force myself to produce work. And this was the one story that I didn't that wasn't didn't come from a class. Um, and I just I I had been working on it for a while, uh, and I kept submitting it places. It kept getting rejected at a lot of places. Um, and I, it actually had gotten published in Buffalo Almanac, uh, which was a small, I eventually decided to send it to smaller places and it got published in Buffalo Almanac, which was a small journal, but which really, you loved the piece and understood the piece. And, um, I, I even emailed McSweeney saying, oh, unfortunately I gotten accepted elsewhere. I, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm pulling out of the contest because I'd been waiting for about a year. Uh, and then a few months later, I got I get a reply saying, even though you pulled out of the contest, we really liked your story and we'd like to give it the prize. Um, so that was really amazing. Uh, that was very cool. Was that a fantasy and science fiction story or more realistic? Uh, no, well, no, actually it was, well, the, the premise of the story was, I mean, it's kind of, it's about genre more than it is genre. The premise of the story was, uh, this guy who, ends up dating this girl who he believes is so far out of his league that she has to be like a, an informant for the CIA or she has to be like an alien or something. So the, the title of the story was, it was something like um, 42 reasons your girlfriend works for the FBI, CIA, NSA, ICE, SHIELD, Fringe Division, Men in Black, or Cylon Overlords or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. And then your first, I mentioned your debut book came out recently, right? How did the, and that was also part of a contest? Yes. Uh, so this was actually never meant to be a book in the first place, um, but I'm happy that it became one. Uh, it was a novella I had written uh, during my senior year of college. And um, it, I, I, it was hard to, uh, there's not that much of a market. There's some places for novellas, but not too much. Um, so I sort of submitted it to a bunch of places not really expecting much at all because it's a, it's a very, it's a slightly obscure esoteric work. Um, and I was ecstatic that the particular contest that it won from brain mill press, um, uh, the result of the contest is that you get published as a book. Um, uh, so that happened, I think that was last year or the year before. Uh, and it was particularly, particularly funny that, I think the day they, because the, the story is about, I'm, my mom is from the Dominican Republic. My dad is from Pakistan. So it's sort of a, it's a fictionalization of my family experiences. And then there's also time traveling space demons. Um, but, uh, part of it is about, it's a, it's a fictionalization of my relationship with one of my uncles. And, uh, the day I got the call that I won the contest and that I was getting published, it was also my uncle's birthday. Uh, and I'd almost forgotten to call him that day. <laughs> so actually when they called me, it was a good reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the the time traveling demons, where did that idea come from? Um, I'm not I'm not quite sure. When I I found more and more as I produce work that I can never quite tell where my ideas come from. They just sort of happen, and sometimes I feel that's where the best things come from. It's something not that's not really thought out. It's just sort of intuitive, and something about there being a time traveling demon seemed to work with the story. Um, but a part of it is related to, uh, 
the, uh, this uh, a f- a famous saint from Spain uh, called Santiago. So in during the Inquisition, he was named Santiago Matamoros and Santiago Matahudios, Saint James the Moor Slayer and Saint James the Jew Slayer. Uh, and when uh, fourteen, when uh, Columbus, that was in fourteen ninety two. Uh, that was the Inquisition, and at the same, Columbus was at the Inquisition, and that that was where he was getting the funds to go to the to go to the uh, the New World, and then he landed in the Dominican Republic, uh, and there Santiago, the symbol of Santiago, took on a new name, and he became Santiago Mata Indios, uh, Saint James the Indian Slayer, uh, and so today um, Santiago is sort of a revered figure in Latino culture, um, uh, but it's strange because he's sort of the object of our own oppression and rape and pillage of our ancestors uh and there is something i mean it, it's it's a historical element but i there was something weird and incestuous and really effed up about that uh and for some reason i decided to make that character a space uh a time traveling space demon i felt like that fit <laughs> yeah that sounds really interesting so yeah so this book it's called technologies of the self so people go check yes. that out and yeah. so, so we heard, yeah, how Harris got his first book out, and we heard how Wera sold her first book. So, Seth, let's hear your story about how you sold your first book. It's really boring. Actually, it's not. I take that back. Um, I was in graduate school. I was working on a PhD in social psychology. It was really depressing for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of which was that the topic, which was racial bias and police shootings, was really depressing. And... Uh, as I was doing this, I'd, I'd been selling short stories for a while. And some days I would get up and just be too fed up to go into grad school. Um, so I started working on a book. And eventually I just walked out of my program and uh, kept writing the book. And I figured uh, I had enough savings that I would try to sell the book until the end of the year and then get a job. Um, and this is the boring part. I just revised the novel critiques from my friends uh wrote a query letter provides that a ton the query letter is really important um made a list of agents i was interested in by looking at who'd represented books i admired found the ones that were open queried them found an agent who wanted to represent the novel and she sold it to tor okay but it was published first as a short story right that is true novel was an expansion of the first short story i ever sold to Beneath Seas the Skies, which is a pretty cool fantasy magazine that publishes stories set in other worlds. Beyond that, there's not much restriction. Um, but somehow you ended up working at Bungie in there rather yeah, than... that's true. Um, I, yeah, actually, that's another cool thing about short fiction. Bungie Studios, they make video games, they made Halo. Uh, when I was looking for a job after leaving my grad program, uh, they had a position open on their website for a writer. I'd actually been approached by a headhunter who had who had spoken to a writer I met through the Dell Awards, which everybody else was talking about earlier. Um, this headhunter wanted me to take a job in Seattle writing for another video game company. I figured it would be good to have two job offers so I could play them against each other to get more money. And so I applied for this bungee job as my competitor. And ended up getting it, uh, partly on the strength of having sold a bunch of science fiction short stories and having worked on uh, game mods as a hobby. So that was how I ended up working at Bungie, where I described a lot of armor, which <laughs> is by now, by orders of magnitude, the most read thing I've ever written. Millions and millions of people have read those armor descriptions. 
So that's kind of humbling. Hmm. Actually, uh, one of the other young writers I had on my list of people to talk about is E. Lily Yu, and I think she actually got the job at Bungie after you left, or she certainly got the she got a job at Bungie, and I don't know what she worked on, but uh, she was there I, before me. Oh, she was there before and, you. Okay, well, but she also got the job based on short fiction. Yes, uh, she won the Campbell for Best New Writer. Uh, mm-hmm. She was there before me, uh, name-dropped me a bunch. She left. I was there for a while. I left, and then she went back, so she's there. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Well, okay, so, so John, you, so you brought up this list of uh, young writers. Why don't we get into that? Um, sure. Everyone, uh, well, let's start with John. Why don't you yeah. just throw out some of the, who would you say are some of the authors under 30 that... Uh, you know, people right. should be paying attention to? Uh, well, you know, I mean, most of the people that I thought of were from the realm of short fiction. And so, like, one of the first people I thought of was Alyssa Wong, um, who, uh, you know, she's published in Nightmare and Uncanny and, and lots of other places. Um, and she, FNSF, and, and she won the Nebula last year, um, for her story that was in Nightmare. Um, and, uh, she's generally considered to be, like, sort of one of the, you know, the hot young writers. Um, she, uh, she very nearly won the Campbell Award against Andy Weir. I mean, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, which was a huge bestseller and got made into a movie and stuff. Like she just she barely she barely lost the Campbell to him um, in the voting. So, uh, you know, so that sort of tells you something about like, you know, how how much people think of her. Um, but uh, otherwise, uh, like Rich Larson is is another uh, writer who, you know, I have to think of when, when we talk about this subject. I mean, he, um, both, both he and Alyssa are 25, so they're at the younger age, younger end of the spectrum of, of all the people that I, I could think of. But I mean, Rich, I mean, he published like 20 stories this year, or, or last year just alone. And, and, and he's published a ton before that. Um, and he's been everywhere, like Clark's World, Lightspeed, Inner Zone, Asimov's, uh, gets reprinted in a ton of years, best anthologies. Um, so, uh, so those are two names that come, that came immediately to mind. There's also, um, Isabel Yap. Uh, I published, I published her in Nightmare and she's also in What the Bleep is That? Um, and she's, uh, had stories in like Uncanny and Tor.com and such. And, um, her story from What the Bleep is That actually is on the preliminary, preliminary Bram Stoker Award ballot. Um, uh, that's going to be finalized at, by the end of February. So we'll know if she made the final ballot or not. But, um, so, I mean, those were some people that I thought of, uh, initially. Um, but then, um, I started poking around to see, uh, about novelists and, um, uh, there's a couple, couple really big folks, um, who are still in their twenties. There's, uh, so Pierce Brown, who wrote the Red Rising trilogy. He's only 28 and he's a number one New York Times bestseller. So, you know, not just a successful writer, but like, you know, number one New York Times bestseller. That's a pretty big deal. Um, and like Veronica Roth, who wrote the Divergent series. Uh, she's also 28. Um, and, uh, there's also a, a writer named Catherine Arden who, whose novel, her first novel just came out. It's called The Bear and the Nightingale. Uh, she's 29 and she, um, uh, getting all kinds of rave reviews. She got starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Library Journal, and Kirkus, which is like unheard of to get starred reviews from all those places. Um, and actually it's selling very well too. It's like the number one, uh, fantasy book on Bookscan right now. Bookscan's like this, uh, uh, tool publishers use to track book sales. Um, and, and she's the, she's the number one title in the fantasy category right now. Um, you know, ahead of Game of Thrones and Patrick Rothfuss and, you know, <laughs> all these other things that you would expect to be selling tons and tons of copies. Yeah. Uh, so those okay, are, those are some names that, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, initially came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I want to leave something for the other people on our channel sure. <laughs> here. So, uh, so Lara, do you have any, uh, any authors in this age, in your age cohort that you, uh, 
really admire and want to draw attention to? Um, you know, I was actually just thinking I, I, I would like to keep an eye on Kay Cronister, who's been published in Shimmer and also um, Beneath Ceaseless Skies. She's another Dell Award winner. She's also an Alpha graduate. Um, and she writes just really creepy, ethereal fantasy. Um, she's only done short stories that I know of. I hope she's working on a novel. Um, other than that, I'm, hmm, I don't know any, any novelists. I'm, um, Kelly Sparrow or K.M. Sparrow has a novel that's represented by, um, represented by Jen Uden, um, that is like a, they pitched it as sort of like near, near future debt slavery meets like kinky erotica. Uh, and all the things I've been hearing about it are really good. All right, cool. So how about Harris? Do you have any, uh, any suggestions here? Uh, it's hard for me to think of any besides what John mentioned. I have, I know Will Waller, um, although he, ha I'm not sure of his, uh, publications as of yet. Um, he's edited the 1111 journal and he just started a really great, uh, magazine just for fantasy novellas called The Fantasist, which I highly recommend checking out. I think it's only in its entering its second issue now. I'm a bit biased because I'm, I'm guess editing their space opera issue in the <laughs> summer. Um, but they're really, really amazing. There's a lot of promise there. Um, and then I'd also mention, uh, Salaha Kamal, um, who she won a, a, a really, really prestigious award. Uh, from Barnard College um, for her writing there. And it, it's something that you don't even apply to. Like the, the writers and, and professors basically just choose you without you even knowing. Like she didn't even know that this was a, a thing that she could win. It was, I'm forgetting the name now. Um, but I know she's working on a novel um, or on a, a series of short stories um, about Pakistan, uh, which will be very interesting. And she's done some great genre work as well. Right, well, how about Seth? Do you have anything you want to throw in? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my favorites have been covered. Uh, Alyssa Wong and uh, Isabel Yap are definitely up there. Um, I really love Sam Miller, who is maybe not under 30. Uh, no, he's definitely not under 30. But he <laughs> looks like he's under 30. <laughs> you should be flattered, Sam. That'll be our, our next um, panel. We'll be authors who look under 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, Cassandra Koch just had, and I'm sorry if I bungled the pronunciation, I'm pretty sure she's younger than me. She puts her under 30. She just had a novella out with Tor.com, I want to say, called Hammers on Bone. Sounded really cool. I haven't read it yet. Um, Unfortunately, she's 32, so... Cassandra's 32? Wow. She can also be on the podcast with Sam, author of <laughs> under 30. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> well... I would point to Alice Sola Kim, but I'm not sure she's under 30, so... Right. She's uh, not, but I met her she at the was at Carmen's 30th birthday party. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that's one of uh, the hardest things. It's, like, really hard to figure out, like, what the precise age of somebody is, right? Like, you know, well, they're kind of indeterminately youngish. I don't know. In that case, I'm going to pick Seth Dickinson, who's definitely... <laughs> <laughs> So make sure you buy his book and leave a review on Amazon. It's okay if it's one star. I just need the review numbers to go up. <laughs> uh, well, I feel I, this actually kind of touches on um, something that's hard about being a new writer, which is 
not that many people read short fiction, and a lot of them are writers or people who want to be writers. It can be tough because when you go to a a writer's meetup or whatever, you often feel like the people older than you know everyone older than them, but are not really looking down. Um, mm. So it's cool. I'm glad we're having this podcast about new writers. And I feel bad that I didn't have uh, more names ready to pull out. So if you're out there, if you're one of those new writers who's had one story out and you're feeling burnt because you got like two comments on that story, <laughs> we were all there. We see you. Wait, wait, isn't Max Gladstone under 30? No way. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe he's not. I don't know. So, John, why don't you, uh, you uh, throw out some of the some of the th- other things you have on your list there? Sure. Uh, yeah, there's one writer who I published. Uh, his name's uh, Tamid Shafiq. Uh, it's the only story he's published, as far as I know. And I published, I bought that story when he was 16. Um, it was one of those things where it's like he actually mentioned it in his cover letter because I think he was like, I think he was maybe afraid like he wasn't allowed to submit it. Like, like, you know, Lara was saying how, you know, this editor didn't want to work with a teenager. And so like maybe he thought like he had to disclose that. But he mentioned that he was 16 in his cover letter. And, and I had read the story before I read the cover letter because I have, um, my submission system, I have it set up to just sort of send stuff to my Kindle. Um, and the slush reader had read it and they had recommended it. So it was on my Kindle. And so I just read the story without knowing anything about it. And, um, and so I read it and I thought it was really good. And then I, I went and looked it up in the submission system. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. He's 16. Um, and then I, I went and like reread the story and like I asked for some second opinions. I actually think I asked Harris to look at it. Um, but, uh, you know, um, it, yeah, it was just, it, it was crazy. I think he's 19 or something now because it was a couple of years ago. But, um, but yeah, I really like that story. That was called the, it was called the Jin who sought to kill the sun. Um, and, uh, and actually he lives in Cotter. So it's like, uh, you know, just this 16 year old from Cotter. It's like, you know, yeah, it's like, you get a lot of submissions like that. Um, but, uh, but that was cool. Um, otherwise, um, there's a writer named, um, uh, Rebecca Kwong. Uh, she's like 19 or around there and she just sold a trilogy to Harper Voyager, uh, that's supposed to come out in spring 2018. It's called The Poppy War or the first book's called The Poppy War. Um, so, uh, she's not, uh, on the scene yet, but, but soon. Um, and, uh, you know, I ran into a couple people who were like on the, right on the cusp. So there's a couple 30 year olds, like, uh, like V.E. Schwab, uh, another New York, number one New York Times bestseller, and she's, she's 30. Um, and then there's like, uh, Carmen Maria Machado is, is 30. And, uh, I mean, she's fantastic. She's been published all over the place. She was in Best American 2015. Um, and, uh, yeah, and actually, uh, there's this one writer that I'm really excited about named Joseph Allen Hill. Um, he's also 30, so you know, right on the cusp here. But um, I'd be curious to hear uh, if uh, Seth's reaction to the story he published. It was called The Venus Effect. I just published it in uh, Lightspeed in December because uh, it's um, it's actually it's like it's basically like a metafictional story about a writer who's trying to write this adventure, this fun adventure, uh, this fun science fiction adventure story, but his protagonist keeps getting killed by police because his protagonists are black and. And it's basically this, uh, and it's like this circular uh, thing where like the, th- the same thing keeps happening over and over. And then, and then the metafictional narrator is trying to figure out like, well, what the hell's going on here? It's like, I just want to tell a fun adventure story, but I can't get, I can't get past, uh, you know, my protagonist getting killed by the police. Um, and, uh, I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was like one of the most, uh, you know, probably the most important story that we published, uh, all year, um, and in quite a while. I mean, cause it's a very socially relevant message, I thought. And, uh, um, 
I've been recommending that one to everybody, and and I'm super excited about him as a writer. Like I published one other story by him um, a couple of years ago, and then um, he has a story in Cosmic Powers that's coming out in April. So he's I'm really high on him. He's unfortunately if, if only he was like you know six months younger, he'd, you know be the be the star of my uh, <laughs> my pitch here. I mean, Seth, do you have any anything you want to say about that that story idea? Uh about it sounds like a great story um it sounds crazy depressing <laughs> uh, i mean part of the reason i left social psychology was we specifically worked on um basically a video game called the shooter task that anyone could play it was very easy to learn and it involved um we ran thousands of people through it and it asked people to decide whether to shoot or not shoot people who popped up on a screen and you were supposed to shoot anyone holding a firearm and hold your fire on anyone who did not hold a firearm. Uh, anyone holding, like, a cell phone or an innocent object. And, of course, we could vary the race and gender of the uh, the target uh, to see how people's reactions changed. We had very good... Um, we track where their eyes went. We could track, uh, like, how many milliseconds it took them to make the decision. And it was just super depressing. The results were exactly beautiful. So... I'm glad to hear there are stories exploring that. Um, there have always been stories exploring that. Uh, I don't mean to minimize the history of that. Um, it's pretty fucking heavy. Hmm. Well, the way that you've explained it to me, Seth, is you've said, right, that the more kind of media you see associating a certain ethnic group with violence, the more that makes connections between those concepts in your brain. And so then however you want to feel about it, or however you feel about it consciously, those connections are there in your brain, affecting the way that you perceive the world, no matter what you want to do. Yes, that's a, a big part of a theory called implicit bias, which has been pretty powerful in social psych and social neuroscience for the last 20 years. And yeah, basically the idea is that the brain sorts things into categories, not with uh, rules, like a dog has four legs and barks. Um, it doesn't do that. Instead, it creates a prototype, which is just kind of an abstract idea of a dog. Um, and then it sorts uh, dog-like things by how close they are to that prototype. And your prototype is built of sort of an average of different dog-like things you've encountered. And the same thing happens with types of people. Um, your brain is kind of averaging the kind of media you take in. And these implicit attitudes operate on a subliminal level. So when you have to make decisions really fast or decisions that are easy to rationalize as logical um, but are actually skewed by implicit bias, you often don't know these attitudes are kicking in. So even people who have very egalitarian attitudes about race, like racism is bad uh, and we should work against the history of structural inequity in America, will still do things like if they're given two uh, applications for a job, a black candidate and a white candidate, if one is much more qualified than the other, race doesn't matter. Um, they'll pick a much more qualified black candidate over a much less qualified white candidate. But if they're about even, they'll tend to go for the white candidate and then make up a reason without realizing it that they made that pick. Like, this candidate seems like it would be easier for them to move to take this job. Um, so that's what we call implicit prejudice this sort of subtle, uh, frequency-driven bias. Right, and that sort of makes me th think, Seth, is that one thing I've observed among the Alpha students that I've worked with over the years 
is that they're incredibly liberal and progressive. I mean, like no one that I went to high school with was as liberal as just the average alpha student, like not even anywhere close. And I'm just wondering, is that do you think that's typical of your whole age cohort or even now people younger than you? Or are the alpha people like crazy outliers in that respect? I mean, I'd throw that open to the floor. But my opinion is there's definitely some selection bias because people often come to Alpha for Tamara Pierce, um, who's very feminist and awesome. And uh, it is almost always all women. There's a lot of queer women. Um, and I think that comes, especially now uh, with online networking, that comes with a lot more political awareness. Uh, but I don't know. I toss it to you guys. I think young people in general tend to be more liberal. I don't know if tend to be as liberal as Alpha students. I don't know, Lara, what do you think about that? Well, I think I think Seth is kind of onto it, right? That, that it is both self, self-selecting and a, a function of the fact that younger people tend to be more progressive. I also feel like there's just a lot... Like, if you're a kid and you read about worlds, like invented worlds, you're already thinking beyond sort of your immediate community, right? If If your literature of choice is like, I want to read about something that is like beyond my conception, you're already interested in looking beyond your immediate surroundings and in sort of thinking bigger thoughts, Um, which is why science fiction has always kind of been turned to as this like beacon of hope for the future. uh, But it helps us like imagine, imagine larger and better things. And I hope it stays that way. Um, I think given Given the kids that we see at Alpha, if they're going to continue writing and putting their stories out in the world, that, yeah, yeah, it will stay that way. Um, so I think I think it is both a function of youth and selection bias, but also, I mean, I guess I'm, I guess that liking science fiction and fantasy is sort of its own selection bias, right? Like, it's a bunch of nerds that we're pulling from. <laughs> and I say that with the most affection. I mean, how about Harris? What's your take on this? Did you notice, did you find the Alpha students noticeably more liberal than other people your age? Or what was your experience? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I've been pretty much in the Northeast most of my life. And at least most of the places I've been living in have been pretty relatively relatively liberal across some spectrum. Um, but I also agree that there's something inherent about science fiction, at least today, that is pretty liberal uh, even for me growing up, I was like the only, I was pretty much the only person of color in any of my, my classrooms. Uh, and we were reading a lot of, uh, we had pretty Western centric curricula, uh, both in history and in, uh, English classes. Uh, and I was always very resistant to that. And the other thing that our curricula mostly lacked, uh, was genre. Uh, and there was, as much as there was a stigma against works that were outside of Europe or America, there was a stigma uh, against the works that were science fiction or fantasy. Uh, and so sort of my social and political resistance, um, to, to my environment, um, very much overlapped with, um, uh, my interest in genre. And I, I can't imagine that, uh, other kids didn't feel something along those lines as well. So, I mean, what sort of pushback would you say that you experienced in terms of both liking fantasy and science fiction and in terms of being or wanting to write about people of color? Um, I think sometimes I, I might have, I, I would have teachers who would say, 
you know, don't write genre or might be a little bit, they might tell me, not tell me not to write it, but they might be a bit skeptical of it. Um, to which point I would sometimes, I think once I, I wrote a teacher, a teacher, an essay about that, um, I was very upset. Um, uh, I think a lot of it was also uh, very subtle in terms of it, just genre wasn't really taught or if it was like if we read Fahrenheit 451 or something in class, it's it's somehow different. And like that does that's not really genre. That's literature. Um, I think it was things like that that really bothered me. And there was so much amazing work um, that I just felt wasn't really getting accessed uh, that I was just reading for fun um, as much as there was work from. Either, you know, I was Muslim, so from the Muslim world, there are so many great uh, works of literature that are often, you know, science fiction and fantasy from our history, uh, as well as, you know, uh, people like um, uh, Gino Diaz and, uh, uh, and Octavia Butler, who were su- such an inspiration for me, but weren't really taught in my classroom. Right. And so were you writing uh, Muslim and Dominican protagonists and things like that? What, what sort of response did yeah. you get to that? Uh, initially, actually, I, I was I was very colonized, probably. So my um, my protagonists were mainly uh, white men. <laughs> um, that was sort of the how that curriculum had formed me initially. Uh, and as I matured, yeah, I would definitely I would I would uh, um, I would have Dominican protagonists, Muslim protagonists, Pakistani protagonists, or all three combined. Um, I remember in college I had written a story. Um, about a, uh, um, it's, it was like a far future story about this group and, and in this far future, everyone from this one planet, uh, were all Dominican Muslims. And, um, the sort of critiques from the, my workshop group were like, oh, you know, that doesn't make sense. How could that happen? Uh, and my, my professor though was very good. He, he, he was kind of like, guys, who is the, who is the author of this work? Don't you think it came from somewhere? Uh, don't you think that in the future it could be so, it could be different? Um, um, but these were students who were very much liberal students in New York City. Uh, but I think, like Seth was saying, even people who have uh, liberal, who ostensibly seem liberal, uh, can still have these biases, whether they like it or not. Right. Well, and you know, writing this sort of more representational um, fiction. I mean, obviously, Seth and Lara. That's something that your books. Your first novels both do. Uh, I guess I'm kind of curious, Seth. Did you, is that something that kind of came out of your experiences at Alpha, or were there other things that factored into that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a hard question to answer because I don't know what kind of person I would have been if I hadn't gone there. Uh, probably an asshole, <laughs> but for sure, the um, conversations I had with people at Alpha and in the years afterwards people I met at Alpha really, really changed my opinion on a lot of things. And also, like, dating a woman for a long time really made me understand issues of gender and feminism that I would not have grasped on my own. Especially because I thought I was, like, a smart person, a smart guy, and I knew, like, lots of things, and I didn't have to have them explained to me. But then, after, like, ten years, you're like, actually, I really didn't know shit, so, uh, thanks for putting up with me. So, yes. My book was definitely informed by the critical perspective I uh, picked up at Alpha in the years afterwards. Does that answer the question? Yeah, well, 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 so when you wrote this this novel, The Traitor Brew Cormorant, the protagonist is a lesbian, um, kind of what 
what was your thought process in that? Did you feel um, pressured to get it right and stuff like that? Uh, I, that's a complicated question to answer. I didn't feel pressure to get it right in that I was not afraid of getting it wrong. Um, I knew I could do it. Uh, I was very confident for that. But I did feel a responsibility to, for the choices I made. Um, and, uh, this is a very complicated personal thing, so I don't want to dig into it too much. But I would say that she was the right protagonist for that story and could not have been anyone else. Uh, and that, that was obvious to me from the start. And I would not have written that story um, if I hadn't gone to Alpha and had many, many conversations in the years after. And I actually came up with the concept actually when I was back at Alpha as a teacher in, I want to say, 2011. Well, so how about Lara, um, your novel Amberlow, which I have not read, but I, I understand it also involves uh, queer characters very prominently. Do you want to talk about that? First of all, I don't think we can be friends anymore because you haven't read my book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it does involve queer characters. Uh, it also involves a woman. And the first version of this story, I, it also started life as a short story, uh, which was my first published sale. Please, no one go read it. Don't <laughs> even look it up on the Internet. But but it started life as a short story, which I wrote for um, a bunch of the Alpha alumni had like an online workshop where we all sort of got together on email and wrote short stories and critiqued them. So I wrote a short story for that uh, while I was in college. And one of the critiques I got back from a girl I had been at Alpha with was like, there's only one woman in this story and she's <laughs> she's a heroin addicted stripper who's in the background of one scene and doesn't talk. And I was really, really upset when I got this critique because I was like, well, it's a story about two gay men. What do you think I need female characters for? Uh, and like several years later, as I was drafting the novel, I was like, oh, yeah, probably I need some female characters um, just like who aren't who aren't sort of weird uh, heroin addicted lampshade strippers in the, in the back. Uh, and not because, it's not because it, like, became any less of a, of a queer romance. It just, like, they needed to interact with other people, and, like, 50% of the people in the world are women, so, like, it seemed to make sense that there would be female characters who had speaking roles, uh, and, and I actually ended up, I talked about this a little bit when I was at BookCon, I was on a panel about um, writing diverse characters in fantasy and science fiction. And, um, we got to talking about questioning that, that bias that Seth is talking about, like the unconscious knee jerk bias that you do without thinking. Uh, and, and I, as I was drafting the, the novel, found myself making these choices that I would have to consciously question as, as I was writing. Like, I would write a sentence where it was like, the man on the corner did so and so. And I would be like, why is it a man on the corner? It was like every time I had to introduce just any, any character, like if there was just a person doing some action on the page, nine times out of ten, I would make it a male character. And this is like Harris saying earlier that all of his, 
early stories were about white men, and that it took him a really long time to start writing about about characters who resembled him and shared his experience. Like I, I have had a woman's experience living in this world, so why was I automatically defaulting to men? Um, and I think, yeah, like I, I definitely wasn't questioning it when I first started writing, and it took critique from other more woke people to be like, why, why'd you make this decision? And now whenever I sit down to write, I, it's like a little voice in my head that I always have that's like, and it's useful for narrative too, right? It's not just about representation, though representation is really important. It's, it's a really useful choice to make for narrative or useful skill to have where every time you make a choice, you ask yourself why you made the choice. And then ask yourself if it's the best choice you could have made for that story. Like Seth said, like he couldn't have told that story with any other character than Baru. I'm also just I'm curious, Lara, your novel, you describe it as a vintage glam spy thriller. Could you explain what a vintage glam spy thriller is? I can. Uh, when I pitched it, I pitched it as Cabaret meets John le Carre. So it's a spy thriller and it's got lots of like tense moments and handoffs and chases and you know terrifying but but sort of cold violence <laughs> in the manner of like a really excellent cold war thriller um but it's also it's like really glamorous lots of it takes place in a cabaret that one of the two of the characters are performers in in the bumblebee cabaret and nightclub uh there's a stripper the stripper is still in the story the stripper is still in the story but she's actually a a fully realized character now who does lots of interesting and exciting things. Um, so there's a stripper and the MC at the nightclub and the MC at the nightclub doubles as a black market profiteer. And he's in a relationship with this guy who's working for the outgoing government. And there's like a fascist movement on the rise and it's all horribly prescient. And when I wrote it two years ago, I was not ready for it to be coming out, you know, three weeks after the inauguration of, Hair Cheeto. Uh, <laughs> but here it comes, all about and all of its sort of fascism glory. Um so it it's like terrifying and and political and violent, but also like really beautiful. It, and and another another sort of comparison that we've been making um besides the Lakari Cabaret comparison is that it's it's like a story coming out of Weimar Berlin. So like if you are familiar with Cabaret or anything else Christopher Isherwood ever was involved in, uh, there's this sort of like wonderful panic of the of the Weimar Germany scene that's like the, the fascists are coming and so we have to party as long as we can or as hard as we can with as many people as we can before we can't anymore. Right. So if, you know, so it sounds really cool. And if anyone wants to check it out, it's called Amberlo and it will be out basically on Wednesday, basically probably by the time you listen to this, it will already be out. You can order it on Amazon.com or, and or be a better friend to Lara than I am. What? Or from your local indie bookseller. That's correct. Yep. Um, okay. So I want to get John back in here. So John, I have a question for you. Yes. So when I was about probably 19 or so, I started going to my very first science fiction conventions. And I remember this very vividly. I was talking to an older writer and he said, uh, are you eligible for the Campbell Award for Best New Writer? 
And I said, I don't know. And he sort of explained what the rules were. And in the course of this conversation, it came out that I was, I had already passed my eligibility for the <laughs> Campbell Award because I had published some pros, quote unquote, pro sales when I was 16 or 17 or whatever. And so then for the next two decades, I got to watch as other people uh, who were almost all older than me uh, went on to win the Campbell Award for Best New Writer. So my question for you, John, is does that sound fair to you? <laughs> no, I mean, the Campbell rules are very specific and convoluted, and I don't really understand why it works the way it does. But, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I know you're, you're sort of asking it in a kind of jokey way, but, I mean, I, I think it actually is unfair because it's like, in your situation, you here, you're, here's a writer uh, who was very advanced at his, at a younger age, and and yet because of that, the rules actually penalize him for having had that success at a young age. Whereas most writers, when they're you know 16 or whatever, they you know they write stories and they get rejected if, if they submit them anywhere at all. Um, so it's uh, yeah, no, I mean it's it's kind of it's kind of strange, and um, and it's very easy uh, for a writer to sort of. Uh, quote unquote, blow their um, Campbell eligibility by, you know, having that one sale uh, when they're really young. And then, it, it, you know, if they're not really ready to start publishing regularly and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, you have a lot of people who they sort of uh, um, seem like they burst onto the scene and they think, oh, and you think like, oh, well, they're, they're the, they're one of the new writers that I want to vote for. But then it turns out, oh, well, actually they had a sale like, you know, two years ago or three years ago, whatever. Um you know, and they just, it took them a long time before they got the next sale. Um, so yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, there's people like Ken Liu who, um, you know, when he came, he, he sort of burst on the scene a couple of years ago where he was like publishing everywhere and then he got nominated for all sorts of awards, but he had published a, you know, one story like 10 years ago or something. And so, you know, he burned up his eligibility on that one sale. Um, so yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. And, and I mean, not just to young writers, but probably it happens. Uh, a lot to young writers because of that kind of situation like you're describing. So have, I mean, have you given I, any thought, John, to how you would reform those rules? <laughs> um, I mean, not really just because it's like, it's kind of madness to <laughs> suggest any kind of awards, uh, like uh, changing of the rules and stuff. And I'm not going to open that Pandora's box, but um, it doesn't matter anyway, because it, it's like in order to change any kind of rules associated with the Hugos, it's like, it's so complicated. It's like, I don't have, I don't have the time for that. And um, you know, kudos to those who do go and they, and they lobby to, to make rules changes, but it's like, it's, it's really, it's so complicated that I, I just, I can't. Um, so don't get me into trouble. <laughs> I mean, what would you say, John, to a proposal to just have a new award for best writer under 30? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I'm, I, I'd be happy for something like that um, if it existed. Uh, I mean, it, it's, the, 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 the trick is always like, okay, well, who's going to administer it? And uh, how is it going to be selected? And, you know, it, it's very complicated for setting up any kind of an award. And um, uh, the other thing is like, okay, well, is anyone going to care if that word exists? Because you know, it doesn't have any history. And, and so it's like, you know, getting anything off the ground like that is, is pretty difficult. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd, I'd be glad for it to exist if it, if it was around. Um, you know, I mean, I always, uh, as a short fiction editor, I, I'm always keen to find new writers and, um, and, you know, a lot of the newer ones are young ones as well. So, um, anything that can help me find those people is, is great as far as I'm concerned. Cause I mean, sort of my feeling, I mean, you know, when I was just out of college, say, I really felt like there was a need for an award or something, you know, just something for people in their 20s, because as as we were saying, it was so difficult and it was such a frustrating like 10 year slog to start mm -hmm. 
publishing and getting and you know selling your novel and all this stuff and i felt like probably the field lost a lot of people at that stage mm-hmm. who just didn't have the uh you know, like the determination to to deal with that much frustration and of course not everyone who's a great writer is it has that capacity to deal with frustration mm-hmm. um and so i don't know like like people are saying though i guess like now there's i mean there's more of these online magazines and there's more opportunities. So maybe there's not so much of a need for it as, uh, as there used to be, but I don't know. I'll, I'll open up the floor on that one. What do you guys think about my, uh, best writer under 30 award proposal? Yeah. I mean, I'd go for it. I, uh, I think there is writing is kind of a good business for fostering insecurities. And I think there is some feeling that, uh, only writers, under a certain age, get all the attention that you kind of get put on an ice flow when you're too old. Um, so it'd be cool to have a, an award for like best writer over some age. Although I guess we already have grandmaster awards and things like that. Well, but yeah. What about like a, an award for new, new best writer over a certain age? Cause once you've been in the field long enough to be eligible for a grandmaster award, I feel like notoriety is not really a problem for you. Yeah. That's true. Like, Kelly Robson, I think, debuted last year with a ton of great stories, and uh, I don't know how old she is. I guess 40s. Um, but she's a new writer. We're probably up for the camel. So there's that. I think so, yeah. She's great. She's great. She has a bunch of stuff on Tor.com, too. I think, yeah, she has at least two novellas on Tor.com, I think. All right, cool. So we're uh, so we're pretty much out of time here, and so uh, Lara, you did mention rising fascism, and uh, like Harris, while we have you here, you know, I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts on being a Muslim uh, right now. Are you? Uh, what are you feeling, and what are other people? Because you, um, I mentioned in your bio, right, that you started this. Um, Muslim protagonist literary symposiums. So you must know a lot of people through that as well, right? Sort of what are just people in your network? How are, how are you guys feeling right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty depressing, uh, of course, uh, but also in some ways very invigorating because uh, there's, now there's a great deal of unity, um, both within Muslim communities, but also with other allied groups. Um, uh, the symposium is, the Muslim protagonist symposium is a, the group I co-founded at Columbia, I think in 2011 or 2012, and now it's entering its fifth year, I want to say. Um, and the amazing thing about it, it's not just for Muslim writers, it's for uh, Muslim writers and other writers from marginalized backgrounds. And the thing I've noticed every year that gives me a lot of hope um, is that you get so many young writers or aspiring writers coming to, the, to this symposium every year from across the Northeast and even as far as like Florida. And they, um, and I'm surprised by, by, uh, A, I mean, how many of them are just really, really want to write and produce stories about themselves and their, the people they know. Um, but also how many of them want to do it in genre. They want to do science fiction. They want to do fantasy. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that, uh, sort of their means, the, the symposium, the tagline of the symposium is literature as an agent of social change. Uh, and it had actually arisen. We had co-founded it right after the AP released its Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, report, 
um, on NYPD surveillance of Muslim students on college campuses, including Columbia's. Uh, and that was a big issue on campus. And as much as political change and social change and legal change are things that are important in the world, um, for us, we felt that uh, stories are the change is re- ultimately comes from the heart and stories are the sharpest path to the heart. Uh, and so I think there's something particularly telling, uh, not only that that people, young writers resonated with that, but also that science fiction and fantasy particularly resonated with them on that issue. Um, and so there is a lot of despair now. Um, but I think when I see the young writers like ourselves who want to produce these stories that are resisting, uh, that gives me a lot of hope. So when you say people from all over all over the world or all over, all over the country can come to this um, symposium, how would people, if someone's interested in that, how would they find out more information about that? Um, if you just go to muslimprotagonist.com, um, yeah, you should be able to find the information there. Uh, they're currently planning for the next, for this year's symposium, I think to be in mid to late March. I'm not sure if they've updated the website yet, um, but they will very soon, I believe, within the next few weeks, I want to say. Um, so, yeah. Are there any examples of Muslim protagonists in fantasy and science fiction that you want to draw people's attention to? Um, sure. Uh, I think uh, G. Willow Wilson's work with Miss Marvel and her book, All of the Unseen, are great. Um, uh, Saladin Ahmed, of course. Uh, I really love Usman Malik's short work. Uh, he's he's uh, done some, I think, novellas or novelettes for Tor and a few other places. Um, he does great work. Uh, and then I think also in, um, I think one of my favorite portrayals of Muslims in, in, in film um, is in, have you guys seen the film The Raid? Yeah, uh, yeah, I saw that. It's an, uh, uh, it's an Indonesian action movie. And I think what, I, what we always see in, you know, in whatever stories we're reading or whatever we see on screen Anytime, the, sort of the more "quote unquote" Muslim a character gets, the more likely they are to be a terrorist or something like that. Uh, you rarely see a, a protagonist who's a hero who prays or does something stereotypically Muslim. Uh, and I think what's so interesting about that film, The Raid, is the first five minutes is just this guy praying. And sort of, if you if you were, if you were walking watching, you know, some typical Hollywood fair, uh, you'd be like, okay, this guy is going to be the terrorist. He's going to be then setting up the antagonist for the rest of the movie. And then you figure out that actually this is the hero. He's a police officer and he ends up beating, beating the shit out of a whole building of mobsters for the rest of the film. And I think that's something very simple. Uh, that to me is one of the coolest portrayals of a Muslim protagonist that is very often forgotten. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay. So guys, we are all out of time. So I'm just going to uh, open up the floor for any final words anyone wants to say. So, uh, how about Seth? Final thoughts? Anything you want to say? Thanks for having us. It was, uh, it was great to be here. Um, and I hope if there are any people out there listening who want to be writers and are young, uh, know that there are, there's a clear path to follow. You have a ton of opportunities. And if you work hard, you, you will get there. Uh, and don't let yourself get. You will get critique that really burns. You will have failures that really knock you back. But I think one of the most important parts of writing is that when you sit down at that laptop or whatever you write on, you need to become a megalomaniac. You need to, just for the time you're writing, 
think that what you're saying is really important and really good. Uh, I did this paper in college in a negotiation class about why countries ever lose wars. And uh, economists were confused because economists like to think that everybody operates with perfect information and makes rational decisions. So they said, why would a country ever start a war that it could possibly lose? This is obviously a silly question. But one of the cool things I found out researching this paper was that in a lot of fields, not just writing and not just declaring war in other countries, it's really useful to be a little overconfident because it's better in a lot of cases to try and fail than to never show up at all. So try to hold on to that fire with your writing, that little bit of spark that lets you know that what you're doing matters. All right, cool. Lara, final thought? Well, I think Tim Allen said it best in Galaxy Quest when he said, never give up, never <laughs> surrender. Because um, you are going to get a lot of rejections if you decide to pursue publication. Uh, and you just keep keep going in spite of them. Um, but I think also really, really don't underestimate the value of having a, a supportive community. Uh, I think it would have been a lot harder to kind of keep going if I hadn't had other people there cheering me on and also sort of beside me doing the same thing. It's also really valuable in a professional context to have like a community of people in any professional context, not just in writing, but in writing especially because you like having contacts is useful uh, and having other people who are doing the same thing you are, who can kind of advise you. You can ask each other questions if you don't understand how to do something or you want to compare your rejection letters. It's a sort of a support network that is functional emotionally as well as professionally. All right, cool. So Harris, uh, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would just repeat what you guys said. Um, it is there. You're going to get lots of re uh, uh, rejections, uh, lots of critiques. I, I remember at Alpha, Dave, I think you had like one or two binders of all your rejections or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I, yeah like like Lara was saying, I had this big binder of all my, you know, like over a hundred rejections that I showed to people. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. So they can. So, yeah. so that made. I'm glad that made an impression on you guys. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to keep indeed. bringing it up during the podcast too, and rubbing it in your face. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm proud of my rejections. Those are my battle scars. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Wear it with honor. All right, cool. John, so, John, final word. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just would say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always open to finding new writers, uh, especially or even when they're young, you know, and uh, um, don't let that be a, an impediment to submitting uh, a story uh, if you think it's good. And uh, like Dave was saying, your rejections will be sort of battle scars and it's, you know, sort of something to... to um, to earn and, and be proud of, not to be ashamed of. And uh, so whenever uh, whenever I have my magazines open to submissions, if you have something, uh, if you have something to send, uh, definitely send it. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Seth Dickinson, Lara Elena Donnelly, and Harris Durrani. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Seth Dickinson, Lara Elena Donnelly, and Harris Durrani for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Scott Polenz and Patrick Fisher 
who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I also want to thank listeners Carolyn Penny and Keon Rex for increasing their pledge amounts. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. And if you want to study writing with Seth, Lara, and me in Pennsylvania this summer, check out the website for the Alpha Young Writers Workshop over at alpha.spellcaster.org. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.